0: Well, good evening, and welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. It's so good to have you join us as we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, we've been studying through this sermon, perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon, we've been studying through it now for the last several weeks. And tonight, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to have it. You'll want to take it out and turn with me there. And I'd like to read, beginning in verse 19, Jesus' words on a subject of utter relevance to us all. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Hear now the words of Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Would you join me now as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and that you would minister your word to your people. Use me in spite of me, I plead, as a means to that end. And I ask this for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Money is a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal. That's evidenced if you you read Jesus' ministry as recorded in the Gospels. It's evidenced by the frequency with which he talks about money. I mean, mercy, he talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell. He talks about it a lot. And we're going to look at one of the more famous passages that describes his view, his ethic on money. It's also evidenced by the severity with which he addresses the subject. He has memorable words in Matthew 19, 24, where he says, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not a small subject to Jesus. It's a matter of life and death. It's also evidenced in this book by his followers, these men who took their cue from Jesus, men like the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's evidenced by whomever wrote the book of Hebrews, obviously a follower of Christ who writes in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Why does the Bible, indeed, why does Jesus take this subject of money so seriously? I believe you'll see tonight in this text, just over these brief moments we have together, a a simple truth, and let's say it in a few ways. On the one hand, you ought to know that how you relate to money really does determine in a very real way how you relate to God. Now, what's the connection between money and God here? I think it's this, how you relate to money in a very real sense reveals who you are. And I, I got this right out of the text. So let's make a summary statement, kind of a theme to lay over the whole message. And we'll say it as simply as this, you are what you value. You are what you value. Now, I, I find this in particular in right here just in front of us, verse 21, where he says, "'For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.'" And that word heart, in the original language, that word heart routinely refers not just to the organ, it refers to the core of your being, who indeed you really are, the invisible part of you that controls the visible parts of you, your eyes, your hands, and mouth and whatnot, your heart is who you are. And Jesus makes very clear What you treasure, what you value, is where your heart is. You are what you value. And so tonight, what I want us to do is look at these few verses and let's figure this out. If if this is true, and of course, this is God's inspired word, Jesus is telling us that we are what we value. The question we must therefore ask is, okay, so what do I in fact value? If that's who I am, I need to know what I value. I I can make some suggestions as to what I think I value, but does Jesus have something to say to this? Can he help us uncover what in fact we genuinely value and therefore show us who we really are? Well, we're gonna see just that beginning in verse 19. Now, let me suggest three ways we ought to self-assess what we really value. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. Number one, you value what you treasure, which we find in verses 19 through 21. Notice at first this prohibition in verse 19, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's saying in essence, don't value material or temporal things. And he gives us an explanation why where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal." So when he uses this language of a moth coming in and destroying, he is referring in that day and time to the great value clothing and fabric would have had. It would have had inestimable value far far more than what we would value clothing today. It was a great treasure of theirs. And of course, as you well know, a moth can very quickly come in and destroy what you have treasured, what you have prized, what you have placed great value in. When he describes rust destroying, I think that's fairly self-evident. It can have that corrosive effect on a metal, for example. And then he says where thieves break in and steal, that's readily apparent to us, where a thief can come in and steal your money, your goods. So there wouldn't have been your local first national bank, of course, in this day and time. They would have stored their money, presumably, in their walls. It's a great way to hide it and keep it safe. And they just break through the clay walls and steal all of the money they wanted. And Jesus' point is, it's fairly simple. He's saying, listen, you must not... You must not, you must not place high value on temporal, fading, material things. That's why he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, take care, be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, that verse really helps us understand what Jesus' beef is with treasures on earth. What Jesus is not saying is money is completely irrelevant. He's not saying never save a dime. He's not saying live in abject poverty. What Jesus is saying is fight the fight of faith against covetousness. When he says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he is saying do not accumulate Goods Do not just build and hoard this wealth, do not live a life that's centered around valuing money and material possessions. And then he gives us a reason why, as we've already looked at through these original uh, descriptions of a moth and rust and thieves. The point is simply, the reason you ought not do this is these are all fading things. You're not going to take them to the grave. Our minds should be drawn to the great righteous man, Job who in chapter 1, verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Brothers and sisters, we will not take anything with us to the grave. It's a simple clarion reminder to each of us that treasuring things on this earth is a bad investment. It's short-sighted. It is ill-advised. Don't do it, he says. Don't do it. Instead, he exhorts us to something. In verse 20, uh, he says, "...but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven." And then conversely, "...where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal." Okay, let's translate this. Contrary to treasures on earth, which is valuing temporal things, he's saying you need to value, you need to prize, you need to treasure treasures in heaven in other words eternal things this is illustrated well in Jesus parable in Matthew chapter 13 verse 34 let me read it it's just one verse verse 44 I should say the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then he covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field it's a beautiful illustration of the great value that a man whose heart has been transformed by Christ has in light of eternal things. You see, when Christ changes your heart and opens your eyes to behold him, he gives you a taste for new things, new taste buds, you could say. You start to long for, crave, We could use the biblical word here, treasure new things, you start to treasure those things that the rest of the world may look at and say, well, I'm not quite sure why he is so uh, insistent on valuing those things and why he seems so indifferent to these things that we naturally treasure. In other words, Jesus says that when your heart has been transformed by Christ, you ought to visibly look different to a lost world that is hell-bent on materialism. Materialism and Christianity are not bedfellows. They cannot coexist. A heart transformed by Christ must resist this impulse towards materialism. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus puts a finer point on it when he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? It's a call to you and to me. What profit is there in this This is so short-sighted. It's myopic. It's looking two feet in front of you when there is eternity lying before you. And he is saying, do not store up treasures on earth, but present imperative, which means you do it now and you keep on doing it, value eternal things, proactively treasure in your life those things that have eternal value. And he puts the great big period on it in verse 21 where he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the reason this is so critical is if you do not value eternal things, you reveal your heart to be wayward, far from God. You reveal your heart to be bent on those things that are not of God. You must take seriously the fact that your heart, the core of who you are, it reveals something about you when you start treasuring those things that aren't of the Lord. So take a step back with me and just consider yourself. My word, what are those things in your life that you are most afraid of losing? I I would encourage you to maybe take out a piece of paper, even press pause right now, and just mark down, what are those things in your life this moment that you are most afraid of losing? That if you were to lose it, it would completely upend you. What are those things that you might say make you happy? I mean, truly, these are the things that bring you the most joy, peace, security. If you lacked these things, you would be devoid of happiness. Maybe you might even want to mark down, what are those things you tend to value the most? Perhaps the best way to think of this is, what are those things you value the most in others? Is it their intelligence? Maybe their appearance? Sense of style? Uh, The way they talk? personality? What are those things that you place great value in? Now write all those things down and take a step back and look at that document and there's a really good chance that that document is now going to reflect your heart. It is going to reveal where your treasure is and lay it before the Lord and make it a matter of confession and prayer and say, Oh God, Oh God, would you help me have a heart such that I treasure the things You have called me to treasure. Oh God, would you work a work in my heart such that I might place my treasure, my hope, my trust in those things that have eternal value. Oh God, would you do a work in me? The church is in desperate need of hearts like this. The church needs more men and women like Jim Elliot famed missionary who was martyred while ministering to the Alca Indians in Ecuador in the 1950s. He famously penned in his journal a sentence that profoundly changed me 20-some-odd years ago when I first came across it. This sentence is still inscribed on my heart. I come back to it routinely. He wrote, He, a man, is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, Jim testifying to his own life and calling, you may think I'm a fool, Jim says, by leaving America and going to this Alka Indian tribe down here, but I'm no fool. Nobody's a fool who gives what he cannot keep. I I can't keep my life, my life is in God's hands. This is not my life to live, it is Christ giving me this gift. I can't keep this, and I'm gonna gain something that I'll never be able to lose. I will gain eternal riches and glory by living a life for Christ. And so he gladly laid down his life for the sake of the name of Christ. And we must likewise humble ourselves before him and recognize that we are what we value. And let's just take an examining look inside our own hearts and figure out we value what we treasure. Oh God, help me see what are those things I am indeed treasuring this moment. That's number one. You value what you treasure. Jesus gives another defining uh, characteristic of what we value, though. Number two, if you're taking notes, mark this down. Moreover, we value what we prioritize. And look with me, if you will, at verses 22 and 23. In verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. Now, he's kind of using an analogy here, and he is saying, just as your eye is the vessel, it's the organ, it's the means by which light enters your body, it's how you see, just as the eye is like a window of light to you, so too your focus, this is the analogy he's drawing, so too your focus, or maybe you could say what you prioritize, determines what you value so let's use this illustration when you take a look at something you are focused on it real closely let's just say it's your spouse you you're maybe engaged or you're just married you're sitting down for a date and you're fixated you're focused in on your wife you ever notice that when you're focused in on something you love it's like the rest of the world drowns out you almost don't even have peripheral vision anymore you're completely focused on that individual that would be a charitable illustration, let's have a less charitable one. You're tired after a long day's work, you come home, you sit on the couch, you focus in on the TV and you become oblivious to everything going on. The children crying, your, your wife trying to cook, you are just focused in, you're locked in. These are two different illustrations that define for us the fact that what we focus on determines what we actually see. And Jesus is using this analogy of the eye being the means by which we perceive light. He's using this analogy to help us understand that what we prioritize, what we focus on, actually determines what we really value. And he clarifies this in the latter half of verse 22 and verse 23. He says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body's going to be full of light. In other words, if you have a good eye, an eye with no, uh, you know, no issues whatsoever, then you are going to be able to perceive and see everything. So, prior to college, I'd sit in any church service i go to, and I could sit in the back of the room and I could read all the words on the screen. I could see it all. I could see great. These days, when I preach, for whatever reason, I, I don't wear my glasses like I should, I can't see more than two rows past the front. So when I'm preaching the hickory grove, it's a blur about two rows back. My eye has grown a little less healthy than it used to be. I don't perceive all the light, all the reality that a healthy eye is designed to perceive. And Jesus is saying, so too, a healthy eye, it's going to be able to see everything. It's going to be able to enjoy, metaphorically speaking, the light of the gospel of the glory of God who is Jesus Christ himself. So he's not just talking about you know, a medical definition of a healthy eye here. This is all a parabolic language to help us understand that just as a healthy eye sees light, so too a healthy spiritual eye sees the light of Christ, which we see Jesus uh, memorably describe in John 8:12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, a healthy eye is going to behold Jesus for who he really is. It's a life prioritized on Christ. But notice what he says next in verse 23. He says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. You see, what Jesus is saying is, A great many are spiritually blind, an unhealthy eye. They do not perceive the light. They are not prioritizing God and His Word. They are not fixated on the sun. They do not see the light. It's seeing they do not see. They are spiritually blind, just as Jesus described the Pharisees. You blind guides, He routinely said. Spiritually blind. They can see things, but they do not, in fact, see. You'll see things wrongly. And so we must take a step back as His people. Look in the mirror of this Word and say, Oh God, what are those things I am prioritizing and how do I how do I change this? I think metaphorically speaking one of the best ways that we can take this Word and meditate and chew on it is to recognize this. We have imperfect eyes. We have eyes that are prone to be myopic, which means you only see right in front of you, you don't see far ahead. And so what do you do? When I was in college and I realized I couldn't see the screen far away, I could look right in front of me just fine, but I could not see far away. I needed help. And so I went to an optometrist They gave me corrective lenses, glasses. And the minute I put those glasses on, I noticed a few things. A. I could now read the screen in the back of the church. B. I saw the stars twinkling outside. I I never really knew that stars twinkled like that. I finally looked up, I'm like, oh man, I can see them flickering a little bit. My corrective lenses were on. And then incidentally, three, I I noticed just the definition of leaves in a tree. As I walked by, trees were always somewhat blurry to me. I put on glasses and I just saw the beauty and all the intricate wonder of a tree. I began to behold reality. I, I took in more light, so to speak. And so what we must do is put on the corrective lens of God's Word. For when we do, it's going to help us see what reality really is. It's going to help us focus and fixate, prioritize, you might say, those things that God has called us to prioritize. Brothers and sisters, number two, you value what you prioritize. And if you want to wonder, if you want to discern what those things really are that you prioritize? (laughs) You may not want to do this, but I would recommend it. It'll be a telling experiment for you. After this message is over, go ask your children, maybe your spouse, someone who knows you really well. Go ask them, if you were to write out the five things I prioritize in my life, what would they be? I challenge you to do that and just discover what they say. What your child says, what your spouse says, may reveal more to you than what you would personally self-assess as your, prioritize, uh, as your priorities. Lay those before the Lord and say, Oh God, may my priorities match your priorities for me. Number two, you value what you prioritize. May we conclude now tonight with one third and final uh, point. Number three, you value what you serve, which we see in verse 24 where he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and he'll love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You see, you cannot serve God and money. Now, when you look at verse 24, there's a big implication. Now, of course, that word implication means it's not explicitly said, it's implied. One big thing that's implied in verse 24 is when he says no one can serve two masters, He is implying that all of us do serve a master, that we were, you could go so far as to say, made to have a master, which is a biblical uh, idea because we were made in the image of God, which Genesis 1 teaches clearly. And part of being made in the image of God is having the ability to relate to God as your Lord, as your creator, as your maker. It is implied in the Ten Commandments. We are designed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to serve Him only. We are called to have no other gods before Him. This is part of our makeup as men and women made in the image of God. Yet, we have fallen hearts. We have fallen uh, soul. We are inclined to turn our back on our Master to look at him and say, I don't want you to be Lord. I don't want you to be king in my life. It's as if we take the crown off of him and we place it on our own heads and say, I will be king. I will be God. And that is the impulse of fallen man. But by God's grace, he comes and changes our hearts. He gives our, changes our hearts of stone, to hearts of flesh. He takes our blind eyes and he opens them. He saves us. We are born again. Nevertheless, Indwelling sin remains within, and we have this natural rub where we live in two worlds. We are between two worlds, as it were. We're sojourners. We are temporary uh, aliens, exiles in this land till at last Christ calls us home. And while here, the temptation will be, as verse 24 says, to serve two masters, to call Christ Lord but to functionally let, well, he calls it mammon, mammon would have been the Aramaic word for wealth or money, to let money guide us. And so we have to take a step back and say, if you think you're balanced right now, maybe you're a very successful person. God has been very kind to you and you have made a lot of money and you feel very balanced. My warning to you is you very well may be deceived. Now, that doesn't mean rich people are by definition away from God. That's not true. The Bible's filled with fabulously wealthy individuals. But it does mean that if you are enslaved to money, if you serve it more than you serve the Lord, if you are more inclined to please the taskmaster of your boss than the taskmaster of the Lord, if you are serving material, temporal things more than eternal, glorious things, the Lord says, beware. You cannot serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. He makes clear you cannot serve God and money. For you see, when Christ calls himself Lord, he's exclusively Lord. It's all or nothing in his economy. He has called us to lay aside everything, count the cost, take up our cross, and to follow him. And in so doing, it means we must die to the impulses of the flesh. And one impulse of the flesh all of us are plagued with is this desire to accumulate, to treasure things on earth. And in so doing, we end up becoming enslaved to them, serving them as if they are our master. And so we probably ought to conclude with just a self-analysis, take an assessment and say, Lord, what are those things that are enslaving me? What is controlling me? What are those things that control my behavior? Maybe the best way to think about it is what are those things you think about the most? What are those things you just, you're just you constantly thinking about, fixated on, maybe worrying about? Those are the things you serve. Those are your master. And so I think after a, a tough, revealing, examining text like this, you and I ought to lay ourselves before the Word and just cry out, in confession and repentance and say oh God would you show me who I really am by what I value may I value those things you value by treasuring those things you treasure may I value the things you value by prioritizing the things you prioritize and may I value the things you value by serving you and you alone would you join me as we pray to that end father in heaven Where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And so we ask, O God, that you would unite our hearts to you and that you would grant us the grace to treasure those things you treasure, to prioritize those things you prioritize, and to serve those things you've called us to serve. Do this, we plead, for the sake of Christ and for the good of our witness. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen.